Good evening. I hope you've had a beautiful day of practice. And I know from just the few uh, meetings that I had today, it feels as if you're very deeply settled in your practice, and it feels really good just to be among you. So thank you for your practice. So tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about um, moving from retreat practice, and I know you're not going on until Tuesday, but tomorrow is my last day here. So I'd like to talk a little bit about moving from retreat practice into uh, daily life practice and uh, using a particular lens of the paramis um, through which we can reflect on how we might leave this beautiful place and yet not leave our practice behind, but actually take the deepening and the beauty that we have found here and see how that can continue through uh, the daily activities of uh, living. So meditation, this practice we've been doing, that you've been so diligently doing, is an invitation to a radical shift of identity. You may have noticed. (laughs) From a small sense of self to uh, really owning our Buddha nature. And I know that in, in the meetings that some of you have spoken about your harsh self-criticism or self-judgment. And so it's not that as we start to meditate, every, everything kind of falls away that we don't want or uh, ways in which we relate to ourselves or relate to the world that may not produce our maximum happiness begin to shift immediately or completely, but we certainly begin to see that there's a sense of um, purity that we've talked about this week that begins to appear. So these paramis of which we're going to speak um, gradually accumulate, this purity (coughs) gradually accumulates. And these forces in the mind can be, are very reliable. We can rely on them. They are outside the small constricted uh, sense of, the small sense of self. And they can actually be a source of grace. And I was speaking to Larry about that. And he said, oh, that's not usually a Buddhist word. And it's, that's right, it's not. It's usually a theological word. And yet, when we use it in the theological sense, it it comes from an external source. But I think these paramis are an internal source of grace. They they spring from our very nature. So, they're not... (coughs) qualities where we're 
thinking we're perfecting this little small self, right? We're going to kind of move it around and uh, make it fit some idea of what we think of as uh, the perfect self. (laughs) Good luck with that. (laughs) But it really does remind us of our Buddha nature. And I think the other day I quoted to you the... um, the way many of the, the Buddhist texts begin, which is, O no- nobly born, you are the sons and daughters of the Buddha. Always remember this. So over lifetimes, perhaps, we've um, generated these qualities of purity by our acts of generosity and loving kindness and compassion and deepening wisdom. And we know that this karmic force, this well of purity in the mind does bring grace or blessings. So we can use this cultivation and this development as a source of that grace and that blessing. I wonder if you remember a time when you didn't know that greed, hatred, and delusion could be purified in your mind, where you thought it was just a natural part of life, that whatever these forces were in your mind or your body, that they were actually who you were. And yet when we encounter Dharma, we begin to realize, oh, these are just forces in the mind that actually can be transformed. So when we do see them being transformed, we can actually see the paramis, these the cultivation of these qualities or the deepening of these qualities as a source of self-respect and joy. So what are they? So there are ten of them, and uh, there's a wonderful story, probably apocryphal, about how these paramis came to be, or this list of qualities that uh, we can, they're actually qualities of Buddha mind that can be developed by anyone. There's a story that there was a, uh, a Buddha-to-be named uh, Dipankara. I'm sorry, there was a Buddha named Dipankara many, 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 many eons ago. And uh, he was going through a village and uh, our Buddha, the um, Sakyamuni was in in another life um, a resident of that village and as Dipankara walked by the Buddha saw him, the Buddha-to-be saw him and was so moved by his presence and his dignity and his grace that he vowed that it didn't matter how many eons it took that he too would get the qualities of this Buddha Dipankara. 
And it's said that Dipankara then uh, heard in his own mind this, the Buddha's vow and uh, blessed it and said, yes, it would come to pass. And it's said in the story that, of course, that was 100,000 Mahakalpas ago. Now, what is a Mahakalpa? A Mahakalpa is the amount of time that it takes. I'm sorry, that it would take 100,000 Mahakalpas and four immensities. Can't forget the four immensities. But a, a maha, one Mahakalpa is the amount of time that it takes a bird with a silk scarf in its mouth to fly across a mountain that's seven miles wide and seven miles high. And that this bird flies across this mountain once every hundred years with the silk scarf in its mouth. And one Mahakalpa is the amount of time it takes for the bird doing that every hundred years to wear down that seven mile by seven mile mountain. One Mahakalpa. And that it would take a hundred thousand Mahakalpas for the Buddha and four immensities, let's not forget the four immensities, for the Buddha to attain these ten perfections and so have uh, Buddhahood. And the reason that I like to repeat that story is because it drops away, certainly for me, and I hope for you, any idea that this endeavor that we undertake is an endeavor that is bounded by time and space. That actually the contemplation or the idea of what it is we're doing here when we sit and walk and contemplate and reflect and meditate, that it's not bounded by time and it's really out of time and out of space. And that the development of these qualities is not anything that is really um, to be contemplated as an ordinary uh, undertaking, but one that we can actually know and have some confidence that just this very moment, this very moment, as we sit and walk and we bring as much presence as we possibly can to this moment, it contains those 100,000 Mahakalpas and four immensities. So that we don't measure it in usual time. But we know it because we are in it. And perhaps over this eight days or seven days, you've actually experienced that. Experienced just the dropping away of space and the dropping <coughs> away of time. And that you've connected to the, uh, the whole uh, flow of all of the beings in all of the world for all time who have undertaken the very same um, vows and determination that you have undertaken.
that we've undertaken here together. This idea, this understanding that this mind can actually be transformed. That it can actually uh, contain these qualities. And what are they? There is generosity. That's the first. The second is integrity or virtue. Sila. The third is renunciation. The fourth is energy. The fifth is wisdom. The sixth is patience. The seventh is truthfulness. The eighth is determination. I'm going to give you a test. (laughs) The ninth is metta, loving kindness. (coughs) And the tenth is equanimity. Generosity, integrity, renunciation, energy, wisdom, patience, truthfulness, determination, metta, and Upeka, loving-kindness and equanimity. I wonder if just hearing that, you feel that this is, these are qualities that are readily available to you that can readily be developed in this very heart, this very mind, and this very body. If you really believe for yourself that transformation is possible, and that the beauty of transformation is your birthright, that these ten qualities, in whatever degree you can recognize in your own mind right now. Or which quality you actually heard and said, "Uh uh-uh. I might guess renunciation is one of those. Right? Or a quality that you thought, well, I can check that off, right? I've done that. And yet we all know that as we practice, no matter how deeply we practice, there is always another doorway. There is always another doorway. And that's part of this beauty of being out of time and out of space. So we can awaken to these qualities in our hearts. And we can go into this archetypal, (coughs) mythological, and timeless world, knowing that the eternal presence, in the eternal present, is the possibility of awakening, and freedom, and greatness of heart, and joy.
So the first is generosity. And I like to call generosity uh, the verb of metta. I know it's a noun for the grammarians in the group. But I think that without giving dana, generosity, that metta doesn't find expression. That there is this quality of heart called generosity or giving that is so crucial and is so much the ground of all of the practices that we do. And remember, we're talking about these practices not as practices that we just confine to the time that we're here in retreat, that we can actually take out into the world. And generosity is one of those qualities that is, it's, it's like an organic expression of the wish for everyone to be happy. And I'd like you to just reflect on that for a moment, what it would be like to have a heart that is bursting with this wish for the happiness of every single being on this earth and in this galaxy and in this universe. And then what it would be like if when you had that wish, you actually were willing to express that somehow, some way, with every person that you meet. And I know that we talk about generosity mostly in connection with money and and material goods, that we give this or we give that or we give uh, the other thing. But generosity is a much larger uh, understanding. It's an understanding of our complete connection to this universe. That actually when we give, whoever we give to or whatever we give to, we're actually giving to ourselves. Because there is no separation, there is no separateness. Many of you have already heard, have heard this, perhaps, before. <coughs> this is from Martin Luther King. And he says this after reflecting on being in India and seeing all of the poverty in India and realizing how in America, in the United States, we actually take food and store it so that um, the prices can stay at a certain level. And he realized that we spend millions of dollars every day to to store surplus food. And I said to myself, I know where we can store that food free of dollars every day, I'm sorry, free of charge in the wrinkled stomachs of the millions of God's children in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and even in our own nation who go to bed hungry at night. (coughs) It really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied into a single garment of destiny. 
Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. We are made to live together because of the interrelated structure of reality. Did you ever stop to think that you can't leave for your job in the morning without being dependent on half the world? You get up in the morning and go to the bathroom and reach over for the sponge handed to you by a Pacific Islander. You reach for a bar of soap given to you at the hands of a Frenchman and you go into the kitchen to drink your coffee and that's poured into your cup by a South American. And maybe you want tea that's poured into your cup by a Chinese. Or maybe you're desirous of having cocoa for breakfast and that's poured into your cup by a West African. And then you reach over for your toast and that's given to you at the hands of an English-speaking farmer, not to mention the baker. And before you finish eating breakfast in the morning, you've depended on more than half the world. This is the way our universe is structured. This is its interrelated quality. And we aren't going to have peace on Earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. So we connect to the whole world, not because we do something to do it, to connect, but because we're already connected. And there's a a whole net out of which it's impossible for us to fall. So that generosity, if we really understand this structure of reality, Generosity becomes um, self-evident. This (coughs) impulse to want to help, this impulse to support, this impulse to give, this impulse to understand the wealth in which we all live. And that there is no way we can drop out of the net of that wealth. So we don't have to become generous. We are already generous just by virtue of our (coughs) connection to each other. And so we just get out of the way of the flow and not impede it. So that our first parami becomes not only uh, an action of the body, but also an understanding of the mind and heart. That it flows not from some uh, external idea of how we should be, but it becomes a natural expression of who we are. As Ralph Waldo Emerson said, there is an endless circulation of divine charity. The very stars hold themselves on course through the mutual interchange of energy. What a beautiful way to understand the world. What a beautiful way to begin to understand that we're children of the universe, that we're not separate beings needing to get more and more for ourselves because there may be scarcity in the world, but that we begin to understand the complete abundance and flowing blessings 
to which we are heirs, in which we are completely immersed. And we're talking about it not as some superimposition of a, of a concept, but really a natural expression of things as they are. if you want to bring it down to a smaller scale, you can begin to look and think about the people you know who are generous. And think about the joy that is in their lives. Do you know a generous person who's unhappy? I don't. I thought I was thinking about that today. Thinking, do I know somebody who's really generous? who's miserable. And I couldn't think of a single person, and I know, I know a lot of people, but I couldn't think of one person who I think of as a generous person who is unhappy. And we can think about the generosity of the universe itself. Plants and the bees and the earthworms and all of the ways in which we are given the material that is needed to keep this amazing earth alive. We are swimming in a sea of generosity all the time so that it's not something that we have to look for or try to discover, but really just open our eyes to. So that's the first quality of the heart our natural Buddha nature when we let go. And the second is integrity, or sila. There used to be a time when a person's word was gold. Remember those days, right? When somebody said, I'll do this, and you said, okay, and you didn't need to get them to write it down and sign it, right? And yet, there is also um, a large part of the world, a large population of many people who live quite with a lot of integrity. And it's possible for us too. I'm sure that when Larry opened the retreat, he opened it with the five uh, precepts. And I suspect not one of you got up and walked out and said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not promising that. (laughs) Mm Mm-mm, that's not for me. I kind of like the way I am now. (laughs) Margaret Mead said, don't think that a small group of committed people can't change the world. And we are a group of committed people. And we're getting to be a larger and larger group of committed people. And it's, and it's not, of course, confined to just Buddhists. There are a lot of people with a tremendous amount of integrity in the world. And this is one of the forces of purity in the mind. Do you actually live by those five precepts or by the Ten Commandments or whatever it is you use as your lodestar for living a life of integrity? 
And how difficult is it for you? And are you really paying attention when there's a temptation to um, act in some way that is out of integrity? And how does your mindfulness really help that? This practice of mindfulness is not just a practice that we do on this cushion and we get you know, some calm and some peace and some bliss perhaps. And then we get up off the cushion and we go for a nice day of killing or stealing or lying or committing adultery or drinking until we get senseless and commit and do harm. What is your level of commitment to integrity? Does it really, um, is that something that is really uh, foremost in your mind as you go through the day? And it's, integrity manifests in small and large ways. And what is your, uh, your relationship to integrity? Do you think about it? Do you think about how important it is to live a life that is aligned with sila? Because if we are not living a a life aligned with sila, it's not possible to meditate. You might notice when you've bent the rules a little bit, but the mind gets restless or it gets sleepy but it definitely has an impact. And is that something that you've reflected on, thought about, or something that you just assume is okay and you're just going about your business, maybe telling a little white lie here and a little white lie there, or not being impeccable when somebody gives you too much change, or stealing somebody's time, or saying what's not quite true? Is there a way in which you're um, saying something to make yourself feel a little bit, seem a little bit, appear a little bit better than you are? Because this is something that um, is modeled so much in our culture, in the media, in politics, in business, And so it's very easy for us to get careless because the world around us can be careless. So it just seems normal or natural. Spirituality is not about getting wonderful out-of-body experiences or in-body experiences for that matter, but it's actually how we live our life. What is the way that we are um, working with reverence for all forms of life, speaking the truth, living up to our commitments. If we say we will do something, actually doing it. Are we careful with our speech? Are we careful with intoxicants? Do we use our words to care for others? As Spencer Tracy said, just know your lines and don't bump into the furniture.
That's good enough, right? <laughs> but we can have a little bit higher standard in how we live our lives. Martin Luther King again said, I believe that standing up for the truth is the greatest thing in this world. The end of life is not to be happy or achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to speak the truth and do the will of God, come what may. And Chief Chief Seattle spoke of us as being merely a strand in the web of life, but one that is incredibly important to it. So when we care for others, this heart of virtue and integrity, we're caring for ourselves, just as when we are generous, we're actually giving to ourselves. And the third quality of the perfection of heart is, of our own true nature, is renunciation. And I saw of Hagar, the horrible cartoon a few years ago. He's climbing this mountain in the first frame, and in the second frame, he gets to, he's almost at the top of the mountain, and there's this clearly wise holy man there with, you know, the long beard and dressed in white and all of that. And Hagar says, Oh, great sage, please tell me the secret of happiness. And the third um, frame, the sage says, Simplicity, self-restraint, and renunciation. And in the fourth frame, Hagar says, is there anybody else up here that I can talk to? (laughs) (laughs) And in a way, this renunciation is really based on a recognition that insatiable wanting is suffering. That this constant going out and seeking for uh, sense pleasure, and it's not that sense pleasures are evil, but that our insatiable desire for them eventually brings suffering. In the West, as lay people, we're not quite so we don't hear a lot of talks about renunciation. And renunciation doesn't seem to be a practice that's been really embraced deeply by um, the, the lay folks in our, in our sangha. We really want the practices of awakening. Wouldn't you say that's true? But renunciation actually speaks to the natural renunciation of the heart an inner coolness and a kind of simplicity that we long for. We share this longing and we share it to be where we are with friends, with work, with children, with guard, in our gardens, with coming back to a kind of simplicity. I think it's Thomas Merton who said that our uh, way of living these days is, um, and this was back in the 20th century, is a violence. You know, this busyness and rushing and 
more and more and more and taking on more and more and more and really sliding by the value of simplicity. And so this quality of renunciation speaks to that and reminds us that the life that we are endeavoring to lead, this transformation of the heart and mind that we practice with, is really a transformation into simplicity. And yet, it feels almost like an addiction that we have. This addiction for complexity. This addiction for overcrowded schedules. Wanting more and more and more and more. How many of you would like to simplify your life? So it really speaks to reflecting on what would that be like? What would that take? And, it, and if we try to do it by kind of superimposing an idea of what our lives should look like, it will never work. It has to come from a place of really understanding this quality of heart that wants more and more and more and more. And really understanding the Four Noble Truths. that it's this clinging and craving that brings suffering. So that the complexity gets built, not because we love complexity, but because we want more and more. So this renunciation that the Buddha taught is the renunciation of greed and grasping, that driven quality renunciation of hatred, the renunciation of grasping that makes us attack others, and yes, the re- of grasping that makes us attack ourselves, this self-crit- the self-critic that is relentless, must be renounced. The Bhagavad Gita, it says, give your heart to the world and hope for the best. We renounce the idea that we're in control. We've talked about that in the question and answer period. We think that we're in control. Is it possible to renounce that? That we show up with our hearts and we offer what we can. Something in us knows the wisdom of simplicity. Something in us knows the wisdom of renunciation. And renunciation isn't getting rid of things necessarily, (coughs) but really moving towards (coughs) non-contention, not contending with the world, but a sense of rest and a sense of relaxation. And I know in your minds you're saying, well, I got to make a living and I got to do this and I got to do that. But I wonder if you begin to look at how you've set up your life. If that can, if, if there is something in your life that it is possible to renounce. Just one thing. 
Because so many of these practices are not designed to be gross. They're designed to be cumulative. But we take maybe the small thing and we flex that muscle. I'm going to renounce that. And that's relatively easy. And it doesn't matter what the object is. What matters most is the, the quality of mind and heart that you bring to your life. So if you try that muscle of renunciation with just a small thing, maybe it's that favorite kind of chocolate that you have to have ten of every day. Maybe you have nine or eight. Right? <laughs> just start small. Start small. And see what that feels like. Right? Uh, here's the quote from Merton. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to commit to too many projects, surrender to too many demands, to want to help everyone in everything is itself to succumb to the violence of our times. So the spirit of letting go is opening the windows and opening the doors and throwing out the schedule book and making room for some grace in your life for what we don't know will come. Because we all know that when we make room, something else comes. So there's generosity, virtue, and renunciation, that simplicity. And the next is energy. The wise use of this life energy and power that we've been given. And there's a famous, by now, it's been going around the Buddhist world for a long time, a sign in the Las Vegas uh, casino, you've got to be present to win. Right? which is kind of the Buddhist way. So this energy that it takes to be present. And I think you've all uh, experienced again this week how much energy it does take to be present. That we can vow that we're going to be present, we're going to know the next breath, we're going to know the in, we're going to know the out, we're going to know the pause, we're going to know the in, we're going to know the out, we're going to know the... What are we having for lunch again? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, smells good. A little hungry, yeah. Oh yeah, in, out, in, out. That presence that takes practice takes a tremendous amount of practice. It's a courage of heart to be present. And to be present no matter what. And to notice how what we really crave in our presence is pleasant experience. That Vedna of pleasant is always just just a a moment away and that we're totally present for a moment and then we get lost in the pleasantness or what comes up is not pleasant and the energy flags we want to push it away go away, make something else happen 
So our energy, courageous energy, that this parami addresses itself to is the energy of knowing where we are in every moment. And again, that sounds like a huge job until we take it moment by moment by moment by moment. And certainly this is a beautiful parami to practice in daily life. When we're with our kids and the job and the boss and the employees and the friends and the somebody in trouble and somebody wanting something and all of that. Or anger, aggression in our own selves, not even in someone else. Can we have the courage to be present no matter what is happening? And that's the um, deep requirement of our practice and one that we don't always like and we you know we don't always want to exercise when things are not going well right this ability to work with whatever is arising whatever um, is going on whether it's fear or contraction or hatred or delusion or greed or grasping or moments of clarity that when we're able to be present and to produce the energy for that presence, the moments of clarity do come. And when we are able to flex that muscle of presence, we begin to see what can grow in this moment. And of course, it's this energy to be not afraid to make mistakes. A kind of perseverance. Vimala Thakkar was the um, Dharma heir to Krishnamurti, and someone whom I, she's the Dharma successor, and I, who I really um, admire. And what she said, Krishnamurti said to her, is, "You must go and teach." And she said, "I don't know. I I might make mistakes." And he said, "No, no. You must go and you must make mistakes." And through that you learn. <coughs> and the monk, Riyakan, the morning's begging is finished. I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddha's shrine to play with the children again this spring. Last year, foolish monk. This year, no change. <laughs> so we're not afraid to make mistakes and to give our hearts fully to each moment. And that's what's asked of us as we leave retreat and we go out into the world. Even more so, believe it or not, than when we're here. Because that's when we can really do harm by our absence, by our lack of presence. So we, this energy is an energy that is without struggle. It's an energy that doesn't fight or struggle against what is true. And your presence with your present with all your being and all your heart. And then there's wisdom. 
all of these qualities, I hope you're beginning to feel what is possible for you in all of these qualities. That this is what you've been working for in retreat. You know, we sometimes think we come for calm and all of that, but actually these qualities are what are being built and the foundation, a strong foundation is being laid for them. So wisdom comes not from what we know or what we've studied, unless it's the study of this heart and mind and body. That when we understand how things are with a wise heart, now I can give you the technical requirements of wisdom in the Four Noble Truths. You know, that we understand karma and we understand the three characteristics and the Four Noble Truths and I can go down the list. But actually, what have you learned here? What have you learned in the sitting and walking and being with? What have you seen that you can say, I know this to be true and it will always be true because I've seen it, I've experienced it, I know it. I've discovered it with my own heart and my own eyes. There's a sutra on complete and perfect enlightenment in 8,000 verses, which is summed up in the syllable of perfect wisdom. And that syllable of perfect wisdom is, ah. It's not a getting to know this and know that and know what the Buddha said here and what the Buddha said there and who said what and who did what and how it all fits together. But actually this complete relaxation into knowing your own experience and to having the conviction of your own experience because you've seen it with your own eyes and your own heart. I remember in South Africa going out into... Uh, this really wild savanna and meeting and, and going with this uh, Zulu guide and he, he had to be no more than 25 years old and I started talking to him about his life and I was amazed at the wisdom of this young man it was so beautiful the way he talked about the connection to his ancestors and he pointed to all of the different galaxies in the, in the sky and knew them, knew their movements, knew where they would be and what that meant in terms of weather and what would happen. And he got that wisdom through paying attention to his ancestry, paying attention to his culture and paying attention to his environment really beautiful. So our wisdom comes from seeing how when we try to grasp what we suffer, from understanding that when we let go, happiness comes. This old woman said to Ajahn Chah, I'm near death. I don't have much time. Give me a few words of wisdom. 
Listen, he said. There is no one here, just this world unfolding. No owner of it to be old or young, just the elements, sights, sounds, tastes, and smells that play themselves out. No separate individual to be born or to die. Those who fear death are speaking the language of children. In the language of the heart, there is no such thing. When we carry a burden, it's heavy. If there is no one to carry it, there is not a problem in the world. Don't look for good or bad or anything at all. Don't be anything, nothing more, just this, this moment, that's all. I wonder if you think that's wisdom. I'm going to be out of time very soon, and I'm just halfway through, but that's okay. Patience is the next, the sixth parami. And it's my favorite parami because it's the one that I am weakest in. So I, and what I found really interesting is when I first wrote this talk, I left patience out. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think of that? I'm going to just read you a story, um, if I can find it. I remember one morning, this is from Zorba the Greek. I remember one morning when I discovered a cocoon in the back of a tree just as a butterfly was making a hole in its case and preparing to come out. I waited a while, but it was too long appearing, and I was impatient. I bent over it and breathed on it to warm it. I warmed it as quickly as I could, and the miracle began to happen before my eyes, faster than life. The case opened, the butterfly started slowly crawling out, and I shall never forget my horror when I saw how its wings were folded back and crumpled. The wretched butterfly tried with its whole trembling body to unfold them. Bending over it, I tried to help it with my breath, in vain. It needed to be hatched out patiently, and the unfolding of the wings should be a gradual process in the sun. Now it was too late. My breath had forced the butterfly to appear all crumpled before its time. It struggled desperately and a few seconds later died in the palm of my hand. That little body is, I do believe, the greatest weight I have on my conscience. For I realize today that it is a mortal sin to violate the great laws of nature. We should not hurry We should not be impatient, but we should confidently obey the external rhythm. So we discover in this quality of patience the quality of resting and waiting. And I'm particularly interested in patience as the antidote to anger and aggression. And if you begin to look at Uh, what happens 
when anger and aggression arise. They usually arise out of some, um, some pain that has happened. And if we look at the pain, usually there's a kind of softness that comes when we're hurt. And yet we slide right by it because the hurt and the pain uh, ask us, we ask ourselves to resolve it as quickly as possible so that we can stop the pain. And we get hard. And from that hardness comes more anger and aggression to combat the pain and the softness that we felt in the first place. And patience becomes our method, our way of bypassing that whole process of coming out uh, against anger and aggression with anger and aggression. That our ability to exercise patience and to actually sit with what is completely uncomfortable, what is begging everything in our bodies for resolution. To be able to sit with that begging of the body for resolution. To be able to sit with the pain and the hurt that caused the anger and aggression to begin to show itself. It begins to dissipate the anger and aggression in our lives. And that's the practice that I've been really trying to do. To admit the pain. To admit that tender place that is begging for resolution. And to sit with it as long as it needs to be sat with. So that I can understand it so that I can see it. And through, and little by little, to be able to work with the hurt and to resolve it, not by making the anger and aggression double or escalate, but actually to dial it back. (coughs) And to be patient with the impatience. To be patient with that anger and aggression that keeps wanting to form itself so that it can bypass the pain. It can bypass the hurt. So I think in a way, this quality of patience, well, for me anyway, is the most important of all of the paramis. It's the one where my muscles are least built, least developed. And for you, it may be generosity, or it may be renunciation, or it may be wisdom, or it may be energy. But there's truthfulness also, which is the, the, uh, the seventh. And this willingness to really see what's true, which is very much tied up with patience. We can't see what's true unless we exercise patience. If we're running in to, to, be, to dissipate the anger through more anger and through more aggression, we will never see what's true because the energy is too hot 
It's too fiery. And yet truthfulness, how can we not live with truthfulness? How can we, how can we live a, an aligned life if we are never allowing ourselves to recognize what is actually true in any given situation? And then there's the determination that we must practice. Just like we practice determination to come back over and over and over and over again in our meditation practice. As we go out into the world, can we formulate the determination to come back over and over and over again, even in the middle of our lives? to actually live in alignment (coughs) with all of these qualities, including the qualities of metta and equanimity. I'm going to keep you just for a few moments to um, talk a little bit about equanimity. Because I think it's it's a really... Equanimity, as you know, is the fourth Brahma-vihara. It's the seventh factor of enlightenment. It's the tenth paradise. So it's a kind of a hint that it may be an important quality that we need to develop, right? It seems, seems to be the culmination of all of these different kinds of qualities. So equanimity as we started talking about it last night, is a quality that without it we can't, uh, without it as the basis of our response in any situation, all of these other qualities are shaky. Because equanimity requires us to take a much broader view than our narrow, small view that might be totally egocentric, self-centered, and narrow. But it, allow, it, it, it asks us to take a really wide view of any situation and to uh, balance our hearts and our minds in accordance with circumstance so that our, our response, as we were saying last night, becomes an appropriate response to whatever is happening. And I, Larry mentioned to me that he spoke to you in the uh, Brahma Vihara practice this afternoon a little bit about um, karma, that karma, uh, the, the chant that essentially says, all beings are heirs to their karma, Their happiness or unhappiness depends not upon my wishes for them, but upon their own actions. And it's a way of actually saying, I surrender to the understanding that whatever my actions are, they will create ripples. They will create consequences. But what is beautiful about karma is that it's not personal. It's not personal in two ways. 
One is that it's a, it's a lawful unfolding. So it's not as if it targets one person over another, but that whatever action is created, it has its consequences. Whatever choices are made, there are consequences. But the second part of its beauty is that it's not, there isn't a single strand of karma. That there, remember now Martin Luther King's interrelatedness, that there are all of these strands of uh, karma or, or of action that are constantly interacting with each other. And in that interaction, there are consequences that are also interacting with each other. And we get the world. So each of us is making our choices, acting according to those choices, and reaping some of the karma or the consequences of, that, of those actions. But those actions are also multiplying according to how other people are acting, because we're connected. And as the Buddha said, without the Buddha eye, you will never understand karma because it's too complex. So it's not as if we can say, well, that person is suffering because they must have been bad. Right? Which is what we tend to do when we talk about karma. But it's a, it's a much broader uh, understanding of the unfolding of this law. That there is a whole ground on which we are all acting together. So each of us has the responsibility of knowing two things, three things, knowing our intentions, acting in alignment with those intentions, and thirdly, really important, understanding the impact that we're having on the web of life. So we're not only having an impact on our narrow world and the people with whom we're interacting, but that that is shaking the web and it's producing consequences throughout the whole web. Pretty awesome, isn't it? So that means, so we shouldn't be afraid of it because what that means is that whatever we're doing that's wholesome is also creating consequences. And that tied together or mixed together with all of the other wholesome acts in the universe creates goodness. So we tend to think of karma as, oh, you know, you're really gonna you're really gonna suffer now from what you did. Right? But we're also gonna reap amazing benefits from the goodness that we put out into the world. So our equanimity is a recognition of that. Our equanimity says I will do everything possible to create the best actions that have the least negative impact and the most positive impact on the world. And I also know I have no control over what happens when those actions interact with all of the other actions in the world. And so my friend Larry here always says, the question why is not a spiritual question, right? 
so we can ask why into oblivion. And it's so complex that we'll never completely understand it. And can, can your heart be at rest knowing that? Can your heart be at rest knowing I'm doing the very best I possibly can and making sure that you are doing the very best that you possibly can? And so whatever happens, it's not unjust. There is, and yes, and that's in the absolute world, in the relative world, there is injustice. And that's going to create its own karma. But as a, as a large body of um, the world, we're in, the, we're in the midst of it. We're in the midst of all of us together acting and knowing the consequences of those actions. And can we be at rest with that? And equanimity then does, we do the very best we possibly can and we rest. And we take what comes. Now this is hard when we talk about things like we spoke about the other night with respect to the racial history in this country and all of the other injustices that we've seen around the world. But we can't say, well, it's okay for this set of circumstances, but not okay for this set of circumstances. It applies universally. And so it's for each of us then, with all of the cultivation of our paramis, to see how we can do the very best we can to make this world a world of justice, a world of peace, a world of generosity, of kindness, of integrity, wisdom, truthfulness, patience, loving-kindness. And yes, this quality of equanimity, where we rest. We see that (coughs) praise and blame come. We see all of the opposite pairs, pain and pleasure, gain and loss that we're all subject to them. And so, even though we may prefer gain over loss or pleasure over pain, we have a deep understanding that we will see both in this human life. And so we don't think something went terribly wrong when we get one side of the leisure and not the other. Or something's terribly right when we get the other side of the leisure. So these ten qualities I offer to you, these ten paramis, as a possible framework for your practice outside of retreat. That you can take one or two or all ten, right? And decide what work you will do until you get to the next retreat. 
it's these paramis are a bridge into life, a bridge into daily life, a bridge in a way of really working and looking to see how am I doing? How am I doing with patience? How am I doing with truthfulness? And a little mindfulness bell may ring when you're not doing so well with one of them. Right? And to see how you can build a heart that begins to emanate all of these wholesome qualities and blesses the world. And that through the power of the purity of your practice, of your mind, of your heart, and of your body, you receive the grace and the blessings, and you also bless the world and offer it grace. Thank you so much for your practice. I want to just read you a last poem from Audre Lorde, who said, It has rained, it's called coping, it has rained for five days running. The world is a round puddle of sunless water where small islands are only beginning to cope. A young boy in my garden is bailing out water from his flower patch. When I ask him why, he tells me young seeds that have not seen sun forget and drown easily. So let your seeds see the sun. Thank you. You're right, it's shaky. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.